Welcome to episode 167 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Today's episode sees blockchain take over the podcast again. With Stuart Traveling, this is Alan Cohn, hosting another of the podcast's periodic deep dives into all things blockchain and digital currency. I'm joined today by Maury Schenk, former managing partner of Steptoe's London office, and now advisor to Steptoe on European technology and cybersecurity issues, as well as a private equity investor and director of technology companies. Thanks for joining us, Maury. Glad to be here, Alan. I'm also joined by Matt Culkin, Steptoe partner advising clients on legislative and regulatory issues before the SEC and CFTC and other alphabet soup agencies. Happy to be here. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Uh, Cameron Arderton of counsel here at Steptoe and former deputy tax legislative counsel in the Treasury Department's Office of Tax Policy. Hi, Alan. Hi, Cameron. Uh, Jared Butcher, Steptoe associate focusing on complex commercial litigation and domestic and international arbitration. Thanks for having me, Alan. Thanks for joining us. And our guest interview today is with Meltem Demirers, Director of Development at the Digital Currency Group. And I'm Alan Cohn, former the, formerly the Assistant Secretary for Strategy at the Department of Homeland Security and now of counsel at Steptoe. Let's go ahead and get started. Cameron, um, there's been an ongoing issue with respect to taxation of digital currency. Can you bring us up to speed on that? Absolutely. So before 2014, the treatment of virtual currency for tax purposes was somewhat of an open question. That is, would it be treated like a currency, maybe a foreign currency? or would it be treated like property? Uh, the IRS took initial steps to answering that question in Notice 2014-21, where they uh, asserted that it would be treated like property. And, and how unusual is that? Is that kind of out of the blue that it would be treated as property rather than currency? I think that there are two ways to look at it. Um, a lot of practitioners thought that this was probably the right way, but kind of for the man on the street... Who are, who's using um, Bitcoin or other virtual currency to buy things, um, it seemed it was a bit surprising because it's sort of as though you're using, um, you know, some sort of barter when you go to your Starbucks and you use your Bitcoin. So sort of in a common sense notion, it was a bit surprising, but the IRS's reasoning was that it's not backed by a fiat currency. Um, it really, it has to be property because it's not a fiat currency. It's not recognized by a government. So I think a lot of, it was not too surprising for a lot of practitioners. Got it. All right. So we have the guidance. Take us from there. Sure. So the guidance is pretty thin. It basically has, you know, its basic point is that um, it's treated Bitcoin and other virtual currencies treated as property for tax purposes and then gives a few narrow other circumstances. But it basically doesn't give a whole range of answers, doesn't even try to. It contemplated doing um, that there would be more guidance. It re- the IRS requested comments on what that guidance would look like, um, but so far has done nothing else. Um, and in fact, last fall, the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration issued a report basically taking the IRS to task for not providing more guidance. Re- so, so this is the TIGTA report. So this right? is the TIGTA report, and I think the title says it all. It says, as the use of virtual currencies and taxable transactions becomes more common, additional actions are needed to ensure taxpayer compliance. And it had a number of findings um, for that IRS needs to provide more guidance. Um, we, I can kind of just quickly walk through the mm-hmm. three main points. First is that IRS needs to develop a coordinated virtual currency strategy. TIGDA found that there was very little evidence of coordination between IRS functions to see the big picture for virtual currency. 
Okay. Basically, they just, you know, they may be looking, each department may be looking at it individually, but no one's sort of got a big master plan for how to deal with virtual currency okay. uh, within the IRS. The second, and I think this is really the um, the big one for taxpayers, is it acknowledged that taxpayers need more education about virtual currency tax compliance, that the treatment as property under Notice 2014-21 creates compliance issues for taxpayers, and the IRS really needs to issue more guidance. That's probably a sound finding. Right. And then the third is the that there should be some modifications to third-party information reporting to help identify virtual currency transactions. And what would that be? What kind of third-party reporting would that mean? So I think there's a range of third-party reporting that um, impl- that has implications for virtual currency. For example, W-2s, uh, which are you know what you get for your wage statements, might break out um, when you're being paid in virtual currency. Um, and this is one that, that, that the notice does go into a little bit is um, that if you're being paid in virtual currency, you know, you might treat it like you might assume it's wages just like it's cash, but it's really not. It's, you know, it's you're actually it's like you're getting um, gold or something like that. So right. having a little more information there would be very, very helpful. Got it. OK, so the IRS, though, does not take this lying down, right? They go ahead and they uh, after two years and change, they act. What do they do? So somewhat um, perplexingly and frustratingly for taxpayers who perhaps feel they need more guidance, the IRS, instead of issuing guidance, um, they they uh, requested to do a summons, a, what we call a John Doe summons, um, which sort of starts, indicates that they are starting an investigation into tax compliance by taxpayers using virtual currency. So instead of doing guidance, they started out on the enforcement side. Uh, right. And then what's a, what is a John Doe summons and how common is that? So it's not particularly common. It is a just it's a very very broad summons when they don't know exactly the names and details. It seeks um, all customer records from a Coinbase exchange uh, for a period from 2013 to 2015. Um, and so anybody who has used Coinbase at all. That's right. And we can go through. It's um, to give you a sense of the breadth of what they're asking for. You know, they ask for sort of the things you might. Assume they'd ask for kind of the names of the folks, but they also ask for um, all records of account slash wallet vault activity, including transaction logs, other records. They ask for any correspondence between Coinbase and the users. So they're really asking for... So it's basically everything. So it's basically everything. So what's going on with this case now? The uh, service of summons was authorized back in November. Coinbase is pushing back and saying this is overbroad. Um, you know, we can't and shouldn't be forced to re- comply with this. So it's still working its way through the court process. Um, recently, there have been a few Coinbase customers who have filed motions to intervene and try and quash. Um, so, um, you know, basically saying that this would be too broad, get too much personal information from them. So you've got Coinbase pushing back, you've got individual users pushing back. When does this all come to a head? So we shall see how this plays out. It's, I think, um, this may be the first step. This may, this summons may be a sign of things to come. And so to answer your question in the big picture, um, we may, this may be a sign that IRS is going to step up a campaign to um, into the virtual currency space. We may see other possible We'll see summons to other virtual currency exchanges and wallets, possibly you know, extending investigations into other um, virtual currencies. Um, I think 
or it can be the opportunity to actually figure out a different way past this issue. Right. I think most, uh, I think when you look at what they're asking for, it seems like they're trying to, they feel like, and they being the IRS, feels like there's not a lot of transparency into what's going on with these virtual currencies. Um, And so I think that rather than go this guidance, excuse me, go this enforcement route, there may be an opportunity to issue guidance, which would be really helpful for taxpayers, and then they wouldn't have to go through this entire uh, enforcement investigation route. So that's something that we've been looking at and thinking about a lot as um, an important next step. Got it. Good. Well, thank you, Cameron. All right. So if you thought the tax issues on this were complicated, now let's turn to another phenomenon uh, that's been going on pretty much over the last year, um, what are called token sales or colloquially initial coin offerings or ICOs. Matt, do you want to uh, tell us what these are? Uh, sure, I'm happy to. So, um, you know, to start, we're talking about initial coin offerings, which have been very cleverly coined um, after initial public offerings of, of securities or stocks. And they're used primarily as a fundraising mechanism. There, there are sort of three different types of ICOs. There's launching your own token for, for sale. There is a, sort of a custom token where you take an existing one and put a second layer on top of it. Uh, and the third, which is really the most complicated, is to use a purpose-built ICO platform where you really build out an entire infrastructure. Right. So you have this kind of ICO nomenclature, but it's actually a little more complicated than just, you know, it's not directly analogous to an IPO. You have these different varieties that each come in kind of their own flavors. That's right. And and they they range both in complexity and also purpose. And so you see people going to market for very different reasons, particularly when you compare it to an, a traditional IPO, which is a very, very different thing. Uh, but that's where you would see a company go public, essentially, is, is what it's referred to. And they do that uh, in part to reimburse private investors as they developed, but to, uh, to become a public company where their, their stock is now traded. Um, both can have a retail investor component, but, uh, but both also can have an institutional, sophisticated investor dynamic. So what's typically going on in one of these token sales or these ICOs? Well, it, again, it, it kind of depends, and, and I know we're going to talk in a minute about where these fall in a regulatory uh, perspective, but it really it really depends. If a company wants to simply raise money, then they can sometimes just sell a new token, assuming that they can find somebody to list it for them. There's an investor demand for that new token. It meets all of the uh, quality uh, security safeguards, and people are willing to put their money into it. Then then they can raise money quite easily that way. Right. All right. Well, let's talk about what some of those um, those kind of regulatory gray areas are. Well, and and this goes back. Uh, the application of the law actually goes back several generations. There was a Supreme Court case in 1946 that sort of established the baseline for what is a security. Right. So slightly before the whole virtual currency. I think phenomenon. it's probably safe to say that the Supreme Court justices were not thinking about cryptocurrency when they wrote their opinion. Um, but it but it goes back to looking at the product and. 
is there an investment of money? Are people putting skin in the game to some sort of greater common enterprise that's bigger than their own uh, investment or activity? And there are two other prongs, but they, they kind of come together for our purposes. And it, and it looks at the Supreme Court back 70 years ago looked at whether or not one could expect profits to be generated by others' efforts that would come back to the investor. Mm-hmm. Um, so how would that apply kind of generally? We, we all know what securities are. What kinds of things are found kind of to fall outside of that prong? What, what kinds of things has the SEC said? You know, yes, it kind of sort of meets those criteria, but it has other uh, kind of aspects that make it not a security at the end of the day. Well, I'll start with the standard caveat that, that all of these questions have their own very special, unique, snowflake-esque uh, facts and circumstances. Um, but it really depends. And, and for as much as we're watching what the SEC does here, we're really watching what all regulatory bodies are doing. So we've seen some at the SEC think out loud that perhaps some of these coins are securities. We've seen other agencies say perhaps they're commodities. Um, others have looked at sort of the, the money transfer and suggested that perhaps that should be regulated. So for as much as we're, we're watching the SEC and Keeler look at the coin offering and trying to decide whether or not that is a security, we're still watching the development from a, from a broader regulatory standpoint about how these, these markets and these products should be looked at. Yeah, and it's and it's interesting. It's almost like this is a new this whole virtual currency, cryptocurrency, token kind of environment is its own asset class because in a sense it it bears resemblance to all of those things, but it's not really neatly any of them. That's right. And if if you put yourself in the shoes of an SEC staffer, uh, might work on the enforcement side. The SEC's mandate by Congress when it was created is to protect investors, first and foremost. And so the SEC in particular has a retail invest protection mandate. At the same time, in the last few years, and we've seen this with the influx of, of the new Trump administration appointees, there's a strong desire to help capital markets flourish. And so Congress passed something called the Jobs Act a few years ago, which is designed to help smaller companies raise capital. And so there's a competing balance that the SEC has to carry out, where on the one hand, they want to make sure that they're not allowing investors to be taken advantage of, but on the same, at, at the same time, make sure that companies and, and those who need to raise capital can do so in a relatively easy, straightforward way. So it's interesting. All right. So even just with the SEC, we have these, qu- these questions of, well, if you characterize this as a crowdfunding, then there's, a, there's one set of regulations that need to be looked at. If you, you know, are concerned that this is maybe a securities offering, then you look at the Howey test and, and different criteria that folks have looked at have been, you know, is there some separate utility to the token above and beyond just a, a crowdfunding, or is, is the token consumable in some way? Can you spend it down, right? So that's, that's another consideration that people have looked at. And then even last week, um, uh, an SEC official kind of raised another issue uh, at the consensus conference um, that, that folks in this space need to be looking at also, right, this question of fiduciary duty. That's right, and, and that's... Um that is not a new question that has been asked, but it is in, in this environment because um, you now have potential investment advisors. You have people who are making investment decisions on behalf of others uh, 
going into a new world that doesn't really have a clear regulatory landscape. And so then the question becomes, instead instead of the question being, you know, how can someone prove that they bought a stock or a bond at the best price or sold it at the best price? It's now, how can how can that person prove that the action they've taken in the digital currency space, how is that in the best interest of, of whoever they're acting on behalf of? Right. Well, so this will be an interesting space to watch. Um, the, it seems like there's a new uh, token issuance or, or ICO every, certainly every week, um, and they seem to be selling out uh, immediately. Uh, and so, uh, so it'll be very interesting to see what happens in this space, um, and uh, and definitely a complicated area where making sure that you're you're watching your step in each of those directions is an important thing. That's right. Yeah. All right. Well, let's turn to um, to something maybe a little bit more mundane. Um, uh, the initial promise of blockchain technology was to underpin uh, cryptocurrency, uh, and Bitcoin was a was the example of that. Um, but then, looking at the blockchain protocol. Um, one of the other areas that folks thought uh, that this protocol could be particularly useful in was in the area of smart contracts. And in fact, uh, there was an effort and a, a group that coded an entirely new blockchain uh, platform called uh, Ethereum, uh, which had a scripting language associated with it that made smart contracts much easier uh, to program into the token or to program onto uh, on top of the blockchain protocol. Uh, Jared, you've been looking at uh, some of the ways that uh, people can use smart contracts, and in particular, how some of the concepts that apply to uh, physical written contracts that people enter into today might apply in the blockchain space. So, Jared, can you give us a little a little sense of that? Certainly, and um, I think it all uh, traces back to this notion of vul- vulnerabilities in the smart contracts, and that's where you see a lot of overlap with the uh, cybersecurity issues uh, arising from those vulnerabilities, but you also have the potential for civil disputes there as well. And the question is, can you just apply the same uh, old dispute resolution procedures that you've always applied in your traditional smart contracts uh, to, or in your in your traditional contracts rather, uh, when you're rolling out a smart contract? You know, do you approach dispute prevention and dispute resolution in the same manner? And the answer seems to be you you might or you might not. So that sounds very lawyerly of us. Um, so it's been said that smart contracts are neither smart nor contracts. They're just digital instantiations of what parties have already agreed to. So how would you begin to put in some of these, you know, dispute res- resolution or other types of contractual mechanisms into a, a smart contract, that, you know, a blockchain-based smart contract? Good question. And I think the answer is you uh, have to have uh, a review of the terms, the legal terms, because obviously a smart contract uh, is going to have some code, but there will also be legal terms probably drafted by lawyers. And you need to look at those and say, and, and probably need to have, if you're in-house counsel, for example, you probably need to have a discussion with whoever is providing your uh, smart contract system and say, what are the vulnerabilities here? And then you need to have a discussion with the business unit, uh, compliance with your other uh, people who you're working with in management and say, all right, how do, how do we deal with these vulnerabilities? What are the terms that we need to have in the legal terms of this smart contract to either uh, allocate the liability, mitigate the liability, or maybe even eliminate it altogether. Interesting. So uh, 
so this is terms like uh, arbitration uh, or other types of dispute resolution terms. In, in essence, if you're dealing with the technology, these are questions that you need to ask as a threshold matter, not only of your legal team, but also, as you said, of the technology vendor, because ultimately these elements not only have to be agreed upon, but they have to actually be programmed into the code, right? Right. That's exactly right. And it can run the gamut of issues all the way from something mundane, like what if we have a bug in the smart contract system, who is dealing with that, all the way up to what are our cybersecurity protocols and how will those be implemented if we have a serious uh, breach of our system, uh, either by an outside hacker or even potentially somebody within the company. What do we do? Interesting. So while many hold out, I think, hope that smart contracts will eliminate the need for lawyers, I think we're probably going to be around for a little while longer. Yeah, there's no blockchain for lawyers or litigation yet. Yeah, no well. All right. Well, let's hop across uh, uh, to Europe now. And uh, Maury, you were going to give us an update on uh, the EU's efforts to extend their anti-money laundering regulations to virtual currencies. Yeah, so the EU has really strict anti-money laundering law, uh, there's two kinds of obligations. One is don't commit money laundering, and that applies to everybody. But the strict bit is for the regulated sector. There are additional information gathering requirements, and these are people like lawyers and bankers. You know, we as Stepto and Johnson, when we have new clients, have to gather very detailed due diligence information on our clients to make sure we're not engaged in a suspicious transaction. And it's even stricter for banks. Uh, it's very difficult here to open up a, a bank account. Um, you know, it can take months for a company to open up a bank account, even in what seems like a straightforward, um, in, a, in a straightforward situation. So this has been proposed to be extended to virtual currency providers, which are not currently covered by those enhanced due diligence requirements. It was first proposed last summer. There were thoughts that it might become law sometime early this year, but there was updated language in, introduced in March um, that still proposes to do the same thing and is still being fought over. And it looks like these obligations will come into force this year, not obviously for the currencies themselves, which are distributed, but for the providers of exchanges and wallets and the like operating in the EU. Uh, this, you know, we talk a lot on the podcast about the. Uh, the very strict EU data protection regulations, making the EU a tough place to do business for technology companies, this kind of anti-money laundering uh, legislation could uh, have a similar effect for virtual currency. Well, it certainly sounds like that. Uh, you know, wallets and exchanges generally also fall under U.S. anti-money laundering uh, regulations. Um, how, how much more burdensome do you think these EU rules will be if and when they're uh, they're put into place? I, I'll confess I'm not an, an expert on the details of U.S. anti-money laundering law, but having done business in both places, I think there'll be a lot more burdensome. Now, I'm a director of a number of companies, and there are just constant frustrations dealing with, with requests from banks needing further information when anything changes about the company. Uh, and, you know, these are pretty substantial companies, but they're scared to death uh, of fines and regulation. And it's become a really significant drag on business. 
particularly for medium-sized companies that are big enough to have significant banking relationships, um, but not so big that they can just assign a dedicated team to deal with it. Right. Right. Well, an interesting thing we'll need to watch. Um, certainly compliance is a big part of, uh, of each of these organizations' activities uh, today. Uh, and so uh, we'll have to watch as, as the EU determines kind of if and when to go ahead and expa- expand uh, these rules uh, to those providers uh, within the EU as well. All right. A couple of quick items. Um, for those of you who have been following the space. Uh, it's been interesting to see the run-up in price uh, in Bitcoin and other virtual currencies um, just by way of benchmarking. Uh, of course, when the currency was introduced uh, in the early in early 2009, uh, it had no basic exchange uh, value. Um, in January of 2015, so uh, about two and a half years ago, the currency benchmarked at about $250. Per coin, uh, and before the close this weekend, uh, it was up at a record high of over twenty-four hundred dollars uh, per coin. Uh, as were other coins like Ethereum's native coin Ether um, uh, and other uh, cryptocurrencies. Uh, there's been a little bit of a sell-off uh, over the weekend, but uh, nothing to indicate that we're uh, that we're going to see the kind of precipitous decline necessarily. Um, anytime soon. Although, of course, um, cryptocurrencies are very volatile uh, and they have been subject to swings up and down uh, historically. So it'll be interesting to see. Um, Matt, can you give us kind of the the thumbnail sketch uh, of what we might be looking at with respect to, you mentioned the the incoming Trump administration uh, and you mentioned the Commodity Future Trading Commission, the CFTC in particular. Uh, What's going on with their leadership on this issue? So it, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, there's a since January 20th, the commissioner named uh, Chris Giancarlo has become the acting chair and has since been nominated to serve as permanent chair. But while his nomination is pending Senate confirmation, he has launched something called the Lab CFTC. Uh, it's not a sandbox per se, but it's designed to make the CFTC more accessible to fintech companies. Um, so one, it's based in New York. It's not. It's by design not a Washington creature, uh, and it really has two components. One is incoming, and one is outgoing. So there's a component called GuidePoint, which is designed to be the connector with the industry, help answer questions, help companies figure out where within the regulatory framework they might fall, help them better understand what the regulations say and require. And then the converse is something that they're calling CFTC 2.0, which is designed to help the CFTC identify uh, what Acting Chairman John Carlo calls analog rules for a digital environment. So is this kind of a sandbox without being called a sandbox? Well, it doesn't necessarily have that same regulatory stamp where a company becomes an official entrant in the sandbox, but instead they can access the resources of Lab CFTC to get guidance. So it may be almost uh, well. We'll have to see, but it may be almost an easier way uh, to be to interact with the agency uh, and perhaps to get uh, to get guidance on, as you said, uh, the application of analog terms to digital technology than maybe even a formal sandbox might do. That's right. It's it's supposed to make it so that companies are are no longer reluctant to approach the government. And the CFTC isn't the only agency that is trying to figure out the best path forward on how to uh, address fintech companies. The Office of the Comptroller of the Currency has also been uh, looking at this as well. 
That's right, and, and this has been going on for for many months now, and is a little bit more um, compelling in terms of a dramatic story to follow. So, a few a while ago, the OCC put out a white paper, and it, it's designed uh, ultimately to allow fintech companies to fall within the OCC's charter, um, which has historically been for banks. Uh, as you can imagine, state banking regulatory agencies don't particularly like this. Uh, they have filed a number of comment letters opposed to the charter idea, uh, including a white paper. Uh, but then about two weeks ago, the New York Department of Financial Services actually sued the OCC, which was immediately supported by um, the Conference of State Banking Supervisors. So this may not be the uh, the immediate way that fintech companies uh kind of are able to navigate kind of the nationwide labyrinth of, of regulatory requirements. Uh, for as fluid as all of these things maintain and continue to be, this this area in particular is subject to change at any moment. All right. Uh, well, hopefully that was a good grounding in some of the current issues uh, in, uh, in blockchain and, and digital currency law right now. Let's turn to our interview with Meltem Demurs, uh, the Director of Development at the Digital Currency Group. Uh, which is, uh, among other things, uh, a company seeking to accelerate development of a better financial system uh, by building and supporting Bitcoin and blockchain companies, uh, also an active investor in this space. Uh, so welcome, Meltem. Hello. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for joining us today. Um, so I wanted to ask you a few questions uh, about kind of what you think about certain things generally, but I did want to ask you specifically uh, about an announcement, a recent announcement from Digital Currency Group uh, concerning its own blockchain accelerator, DCG Connect, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I would love to. So um, Digital Currency Group, we've been around for about four years now. We've been investing in the industry for the last four years. We formed Digital Currency Group in 2015 and launched it in late 2015. And I think one of the things that certainly we've observed as investors, as, as people building companies, is that the digital currency and blockchain space is really challenging today. I think a lot of people have great technologies that they're experimenting with. There's so much interesting innovation happening on the technology side. And now what we're seeing is people trying to understand how we can take this technology and apply it to some of the really critical challenges and opportunities, frankly, that enterprises, corporations, institutions have ahead of them. So there's this whole wave of disruptive technologies, whether it's IoT, whether it's blockchain, whether it's AI and machine learning, that are all sort of coming to market at the same time. And what we were seeing is all of our portfolio companies and even companies outside our portfolio were really sort of struggling to cross that chasm from what they were doing on the technical innovation side to actually identifying real-world enterprise use cases to deploy that technology in a meaningful way. And on the flip side, what we saw is, you know, when we started um, pulling DCG together, we realized early on the the support of key strategic investors is going to be really important for this ecosystem. So having corporations, payments companies, banks around the table was really critical to what we saw the future of this industry being. And what happened is over the last two years, um, probably 50% of my time has been spent speaking to hundreds of different corporations, institutions, regulators, who all wanted access to our network, 
our insights, who wanted to help with the application of the technology. And so we said, you know what, let's formalize this, let's productize it, let's make it more scalable so that it's not just us having these one-off conversations five times a week, but how do we actually start to build a practice and a discipline around how we connect use cases, enterprises, companies that are building in this space? And so DCG Connect was sort of born out of that idea. Um, I spent the last six months speaking with companies, corporates, enterprise technology companies, really trying to understand what the, the frictions are in today's community. And what we identify was it's really about networks. So how do we provide people access to a really big ecosystem? This is where you've seen efforts like Hyperledger being really successful. They just have built a big ecosystem. And I think if people look to identify and deploy enterprise blockchain technology, they want a big ecosystem around that technology, around those platforms. So that was sort of one was that network. The second was really around insights. So as you alluded to, you know, we've been investing for the last four years. We've now invested in over 100 companies across 27 different countries. So we just have a tremendous degree of insight as to what's happening in different parts of the world with different types of technologies, who's doing what with it, and we wanted to be able to share that insight with some of our corporate members. And then the last piece, really, and the piece I'm most excited about, which will also likely be the most challenging, is really rethinking the application of this technology. So today's business models, we see a lot of POCs happening. We see a lot of companies doing free consulting or doing these small one-off meetings. And we really wanted to think about, okay, what tools and processes can we develop to accelerate that process? Um, If you're a startup and you have a year of runway, you don't really have time to go through an 18 to 24-month enterprise sales cycle. So a lot of what we're thinking about with IBM and AWS is what role do enterprise technology companies and systems integrators play in accelerating that application cycle? So we're really excited. We've gotten a ton of great feedback from companies that are participating. Any and all startups in the space are welcome to join. It's free for startups and blockchain service providers. And then we're also working with a lot of really interesting corporate members to help them identify opportunities to work with one another, but also a broader group of companies on building out specific application ecosystems. So very excited about it. It's going to be a lot of hard work. There's a lot to figure out. But I think the direction we're moving is really to building ecosystems because this is, at the end of the day, networking technology. And so we need to find new ways to help people build those business networks for these applications that are being developed. No, that's really interesting. And it and it's um, it really does, I think, uh, Digital Currency Group is in something of a unique position, not only to be able to create the network, but as you said, to kind of see those insights. So maybe you could help share some of those insights with us. I think first and foremost, when people think about blockchain, at least in, in certain circles, you still think about, uh, Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrency and kind of what do you see <laughs> as the, what do you see as the current landscape of, of the kind of the cryptocurrency side of blockchain? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. So as our name implies, we are digital currency group. Um, we are still very much excited about the potential for digital currencies, digital assets to play a major role in re, thinking, restructuring today's financial system, uh, marketplaces, the way that people conceptualize and exchange value. 
And so what we're really interested in is in 2015, you'd go into a room um, at a bank and you'd sit down with a leadership team and you'd say the word Bitcoin and you would literally watch the blood drain out of their face. Right. They're like, oh, no. We don't do that. We don't do Bitcoin. Um, I think what's happened over the last year especially is a lot of the companies we invested early on in 2013, 2014 were exchanges. They were wallets. They were infrastructure providers. Now that that financial infrastructure has been built, we're seeing an entirely new market of applications leveraging that underlying Bitcoin network and other cryptocurrency networks like Ripple. Ripple's really developed a lot over the last year are actually leveraging these networks as new payment rails, and they're abstracting away the digital currency component, and we're actually seeing major enterprises using the digital currency payment rail as a means to transfer money. So I do think that there is a lot of opportunity around digital currencies. I think we're seeing a lot more enterprises starting to touch digital currency directly. Some of that stigma is being removed. Um, but we've certainly been spending a lot of time on the infrastructure side, thinking about what tools need to be developed. Do we need to create an SRO? How can we work with regulators? So what are the things that we can proactively do as an industry to help create a stable, resilient, and inclusive financial system around digital currencies? Um, and then, of course, we're seeing a lot of innovation around how people are digitizing assets that aren't currencies. So we look at the projects that the CME Group and the Royal Mint did with our portfolio company, BitGo, and with AlphaPoint, um, they're digitizing gold. Right? And as we think about digitizing other assets, a lot of the principles of digital currencies also apply to digitizing other assets, whether that's creating a receivables marketplace for supply chain financing, whether it's you know digitizing gold and other commodities. A lot of the principles of how we conceptualize what digital currency, healthy digital currency ecosystems look like also apply to all of these new asset classes. Right. So I think we're going to see these companies who have invested in really building robust infrastructure start to diversify the types of assets that they're, they're enabling to be traded and stored and managed in wallets. Um, and it's, I think we're going to see a real blossoming of the digital asset class. Interesting. So what? So you you, no, you noted not only the the use for payment rails and the abstracting out of of, of virtual currency uh, as the the currency piece, um, but there's a lot of other use cases that aren't um, currency oriented, um, especially that you you mentioned with respect to um, uh, to enterprise applications. So so tell us what you see as kind of the main blockchain use cases that are really you know, showing their viability and through proofs of concept and and pilots uh, that that are kind of point at what what's coming next in this in this enterprise space. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there are a couple of really interesting applications, and I want to talk about this sort of in a um, historical context as well. So as I alluded to earlier, I think. In order to understand where enterprise blockchain is headed, we kind of have to look back at the history of Bitcoin. So we saw the first sort of businesses being built around Bitcoin in 2011, 2012, 2013. And it was primarily people building um, core infrastructure like wallets, like hardware solutions, like new protocols, right, that were being developed at the time. Then on top of that, people started building exchanges and trading tools to help people move fiat 
into and out of digital currencies. Then on top of that, we saw people building payments 2.0 applications that enabled things like cross-border payments, remittances. Now we see people experimenting with innovations around micropayments, uh, new payment models, new marketplaces. Then on top of that, we saw people start to experiment with digital identity, right? Um, once you have assets on a digital distributed ledger, you have digital wallets, you need digital identities. You need to figure out how to manage multi-sig and make it user-friendly. And then on top of that, we saw people saying, hmm, if I have this blockchain and I can track the movement of this digital currency, what else can I use it for? And so the idea of a uh, registry, a blockchain-based registry, started to sort of proliferate. And then once we got to that point, we have this concept of, okay, digital identities, I can now positively verify, attest, authorize things using a digital signature. I have this digital identity that's resilient and can be um, used across different platforms. Now I have these registries where I'm tracking the movement of different assets using that digital identity. Then we started to get into, what about smart contracts? What's possible here? Um, what can I do once I have assets in this new format? And so I think the applications that are gaining a lot of traction in the enterprise are starting with, okay, we have all of these pain points today around identity. How can we use this technology to improve the way we think about identity? Um, we have our physical identities, obviously. We have our digital identities. And then a lot of people increasingly have virtual identities, right? We have a lot of people who are Twitter pundits or who are really prominent on Reddit. You have all of these different identities you're managing. And within the enterprise especially, you think about a corporation that may have 10 or 20 or 100 global subsidiaries. Really interesting to think about, okay, instead of each subsidiary having its own silo of identity data, could we change that and create one global identity that can be shared between these businesses in a fully compliant way, right? A lot of regulation, particularly coming out in the EU around how identity is managed and how PII is stored and custodied. Um, and then the other big trend we're seeing in addition to the digital identity trend is a trend around blockchain-based registries. So we have examples of companies like Everledger who are creating a blockchain for diamonds. So today I think they have nearly 2 million diamonds on the blockchain that they've registered and they're working with the diamond industry to try to get every block, uh, pardon, every diamond from the moment it's mined out of the ground, they're onto this blockchain so its provenance can be tracked. We have companies like Skewchain who are working in the supply chain financing space who are looking at, okay, not only how do we have this, this distributed ledger where we can track the movement of assets and who owns what, but more importantly, how do I take a physical good and get it onto a distributed ledger in the first place, right? A physical good is inherently not digital, so how do we digitize it in a way where I can trust the authenticity of the data? And so I think a lot of these types of applications need to be built before we can start getting into the more nuanced use cases like smart contracts and others that will require some of this infrastructure to already be in place. So I see a lot of industries looking at how we can build these shared digital identity solutions, how we reconceptualize identity data in the context of a transaction, and then the registry aspect, I think, is one thing that a lot of people are thinking about and experimenting with internally. Right. So as an investor, you get to you get to see a lot of these companies from kind of a traditional viewpoint, but there's been a new phenomenon in the space uh, basically since last summer of uh, companies experimenting with a different way of 
both uh, raising money, but also marketing basically utility um, or uh, or kind of consumable tokens to use on their on their platforms. This is kind of the token sale, token issuance, or what's shorthanded <laughs> as uh, as initial coin offerings or ICOs. What's your thought on this? So um, ICOs are really, really interesting theme. That's that's emerging. As you alluded to, I think a lot of people are looking at these initial coin offerings, these token sales, and they're viewing them as a new way to form capital for a company, particularly in this space. I think even for us as investors, investing in a company building an open source protocol, like that doesn't really make sense in the traditional VC sense, right? So I'm going to give this company a few million dollars and they're going to build this open source new technology. And then maybe one day they'll build platforms and applications on top of that open source and make money that way. It's a very, it was a weird concept. Um, I think VC was very open to it, but I think now that there's so many new protocols, so many new technologies that are developing, um, people started to say, okay, what if we just created our, our own token? Um, I do think there are probably a few classes <laughs> of tokens. Right. I have a strong preference for those tokens that serve a real functional purpose within a specific protocol. So, for example, one of our companies, um, Protocol Labs, they're working on the IPFS protocol, which stands for Interplanetary File System. So, big idea, basically distributed file storage. They've already built the network. There are already people building using the protocol. They're building applications that leverage IPFS for the data storage component of their application. And now that they've created the protocol, there's people building with it. They said, okay, we want to get more storage capacity in the network. Let's incentivize people by creating this Filecoin token. That, to me, is an ICO that makes a lot of sense, right? That's a token that has a clear purpose. Now, how it will play out? We're all going to find out in the next few months if that token comes to market. But to me, something like that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think some of the other tokens we see being launched are launched off the back of a white paper. I don't know how many people who buy these tokens actually read the white papers. Um, I think we're kind of in this interesting boom where greed is <laughs> the driving motivation behind a lot of the investors who are investing ICOs. I would probably guess that about 50% of people who buy these tokens have really no idea what they're they're buying or what the platform is is claiming to do. Um, but we have seen several token sales where people have raised millions, you know, $20 million, $30 million with no product, with no platform, not even a test net, nothing. So um, to me, there is a little bit of a rational exuberance around ICOs, but I think it's forcing everyone to ask themselves some important questions. I certainly um, have been proven wrong on many assumptions <laughs> that I personally had, which I think is always great when you can be be wrong. Um, but we're going to see how it, how it plays out. I think the biggest worry is I just want to make sure that people who are buying these tokens don't spend more money than you're willing to lose, right? You have to assume that all digital currencies will go to zero. You can't, you can't invest in them the same way you would hold money in your bank account. So I do worry about people who are liquidating assets to buy into these ICOs. It strikes me as very concerning. And then I think second piece is I just want our industry to be very careful. Um, Mt. Gox just had such a devastating effect on Bitcoin. It just had so many 
um, negative narratives that were created. It took a long time for us to overcome that specific incident as a community. And so I would hate to see something happen in the ICO side that would create a similar sort of cooling off or would create a lot of fear in the minds of, of investors. And a lot of that, frankly, goes back to the exchanges, having good wallets so people can take their money off exchange. It's making sure people understand security practices, helping people figure out how to use hardware wallets like a ledger or a trezor, just helping people be smart, helping people be safe, and most importantly, just making sure that people aren't taking on a disproportionate amount of risk. Right. So overall theme, I think, exciting, but um, the details around how you actually implement it and help this ecosystem grow, I think, are going to require a lot of collaboration between people who are developing these new protocols and launching these ICOs, exchanges, wallets, um, regulators. I assume at some point we'll get involved. It's still a tiny market, so I think it'll take, take some time. But I think proactively demonstrating as an industry that we're being thoughtful, that we're being pragmatic, and most importantly, that we're protecting users, I think will go a long way towards helping smooth um, the growth of that. that right. Trend. right. And as you said, you know, a lot of this really looks at kind of what is, what does the platform do? What's the utility of the token? Um, how is it used? You know, what function does it perform? What function does the platform perform? Um you know, what is the, what are the privileges and kind of the obligations that you have when you become a kind of a token holder in that environment? And so the, the kind of clearly articulating those things and understanding them becomes, uh, extremely important. I think we talked about that from the, we talked about that from the regulatory perspective, but it sounds like it's also important from the operational, uh, and the technical and kind of the, the, the human uh, perspective as well. Um, so, so it's really interesting. There's a lot going on. It always strikes me that if you turn your head for more than a few months from this ecosystem, it has moved on to the next phase without you. And you have to, uh, it's such, it's so dynamic and there, there's so much happening. <laughs> it's so hard to keep up. <laughs> so what it's do you, so, hard. <laughs> so I have kind of a, 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 a joint question as a, and I think this will probably be the last uh, question we'll have time for is kind of what do you see as the most interesting thing coming next? You've talked about digital identity. You've talked about registries. Where does that either take us? Um, or is there something else that you see kind of looming on the horizon, uh, maybe in conjunction with technologies like uh, industrial Internet or artificial intelligence and machine learning or quantum computing? Um, and, and what yeah. will be the signals that we've kind of moved to the next phase uh, of, of, the, of the development of this ecosystem? Yeah, so I think um, there's sort of two key themes that I'm keeping an eye on. So... I, I think it's always interesting. You know, I kind of sit firmly between the digital currency, Bitcoin side. I'm a very much a believer in, in Bitcoin, in digital currencies. Um, I love spending time with that particular community. And I think I am strongly motivated by some of these ideals around how we create more efficient, more transparent um, financial systems that are empowering end users. So I see that disintermediation trend continuing. And I think what's interesting there is it it's not necessarily happening here in the U.S. We have a fairly robust financial system here. Although I think people forget that, you know, we still have 30% of the population in this country that is unbanked or underbanked. That, that's massive. Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think as we look at the U.S., people don't realize 
in places like Argentina, in places like Kenya, pardon, in places like the Philippines, Bitcoin is taking off in a big way. Digital currencies are taking off in a really big way. They are serving people as a store of value. It's serving people as a payment rail. For a lot of people, it's providing them access to the financial system for the first time through a digital wallet. Um, so I think this is a really exciting global theme that is going to continue to develop. Um, one great example in the Philippines, um, Coins PH, which is a platform that enables people to have digital wallets where they can hold uh, Bitcoin, but it's denominated in the local currency. And what's interesting is they've partnered with different cash-in and cash-out locations, and there are now more locations in the country where you can cash-in, cash-out with CoinsPH than there are bank branches, right? So that's pretty phenomenal. There's a lot of really amazing work that's happening around the world that our entrepreneurs um, are, are working on. So I think that theme is going to continue kind of outside the financial system and slowly payment aggregators, cross-money, um, cross-border money transmitters, uh, different types of companies are starting to get involved. And it will start slowly, I think. And by the time we realize it's happening, it'll kind of have hit that momentum point. But I certainly see the digital currency trend continuing to accelerate around the world. And then I think on the blockchain side, um, enterprises are – there are some organizations that I think have really taken a very proactive approach – um, they are doing a lot of interesting experimentation. I think the big hurdle will be how do we go from small controlled experiments to widespread implementation? And I think this is the big hurdle that DCG Connect is going to work on um, overcoming together with some of our key partners. We're really thinking about what type of infrastructure, what type of systems, what type of processes, what type of business networks and application ecosystems do we need to create to help take people from, okay, what is what is blockchain, right? You could ask five people that question and they would have five different answers for you. Um, it's still a very confusing, very noisy, fragmented industry. So I think as we start to see um, the industry mature, as we start to get more clarity on what applications, what platforms will go into production soonest, I think it is going to be a process of making sure that there are enterprise technology companies that corporates can go to who they already have procurement relationships with to buy these services, to buy the software, the licenses, to run the, these technologies. Then on top of that, how do they access an ecosystem of applications they can run on whatever distributed ledger they, they choose is most appropriate for their goals and their organization? And then how do we create a robust ecosystem of systems integrators, um, who can help integrate that technology. A startup with, you know, 10, 50 employees, they're not going to be able to <laughs> implement large-scale enterprise um, projects across, you know, 10 different clients. It's really going to take collaboration between various stakeholders in this emerging ecosystem. And so I, I still think we're a ways away. 2017 is supposed to be the year we go into production. But um, I would say, you know, 2018, 2019 is looking more more likely because changing core infrastructure is hard. And without a burning platform to sort of push people to change, I think a lot of people are going to experiment. They're going to look at the cost associated with changing. They're going to look at the human cost of changing processes and business practices. It's not the technology that's the hard part, right? It's always the process change. It's the people change. 
And so I think it's going to take a bit longer than we thought because there's still so much educating that needs to be done. We need better narratives as an industry. We need to get better at communicating. Um, and I think that that will take time, but I see a lot of really smart people working on these problems. We have great publications in the industry, um, great service providers like you guys who are all working to sort of educate and advocate. But I do think it's, it's going to take longer than we anticipated but when it happens i do think it'll go much more quickly than than anyone expected yeah that makes sense and so a lot to uh a lot to look forward to in this space uh but a lot of uh, a lot of development still to come thank you so much for joining us today we really appreciate it uh Meltem, and we look forward to talking to you again soon sounds good thank you so much for having me I hope everyone has a uh, wonderful day and uh, looking forward to seeing what happens over the next few years. Uh, thank you to Meltem, uh, to Maury Shank, uh, to Matt Culkin, Cameron Arterton, uh, and Jared Butcher. This has been Episode 167 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Don't forget, uh, if you suggest a guest interviewee and they join us on the show, we'll send you a highly coveted Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast mug. Uh, so send your suggestions to Podcast at steptoe.com. Coming up, we'll be joined by David Sanger of the New York Times uh, and Ben Buchanan, author of The Cybersecurity Dilemma. Uh, We hope that you'll join us once again uh, as we provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.